Well, this morning uh, we'll be looking at Psalm 30. Uh, we have finished our series in Mark, and this week and next week we'll be doing a couple of um, what we call just one-off sermons uh, as we prepare for our summer series that we'll be beginning uh, in the book of Acts. So uh, this morning, Psalm 30, if you brought a Bible, if you have one with you, or if you have your bulletin in front of you, you can follow along as I read God's words. Let us give our attention to his word at this time. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul or my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, this morning uh, we pray, I pray, that you would be with us as we look at your word now and as we continue our worship of you this morning. Uh, would you this morning, though, do a miracle, and by a miracle, would you soften hardened hearts, uh, that your gospel may go in and penetrate that heart and produce a fruit, that we would all leave here changed people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll start with a question as we look at Psalm 30 this morning. What moves you to thanksgiving and praise in uh, your life today and, and, and really just towards anyone? What moves you towards thanksgiving and praise, uh, whether it be your, towards your friends, uh, towards your parents, uh, your siblings, spouse, kids, whatever it might be? What moves you to do that, to give thanks, to praise. For my girls, and they're all under 10 at this point, uh, it's really one thing. It's getting what they want. Um, Daddy, we, we want popcorn. Can we have popcorn? Uh, sure. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Daddy, uh, we want some pancakes this morning. Can we have pancakes? Uh, no. And then, of course, there's all kinds of pleas and just a lot of whining. Um, and then I'd buckle and say, okay. And then there's all kinds of thanks. Thank you. Thank you. You're the best daddy ever. Um, daddy, can we have ice cream? Um, and this is when the, the real, you know, Thanksgiving and praises come out is when the ice cream is, is said yes to. 
But as kids, Thanksgiving and praise often comes when we get what we want. There's really no surprise there. And I know uh, my 40-year-old heart a little bit now by this point, and I'm not uh, you know, that far away from them still. I'm very much the same way. But instead of popcorn and pancakes and ice cream, uh, it's college football, which is probably going to be taken away this fall. It's landscaping and it's peace and quiet in my house. That's what I want. And that's what I give praise and thanks for this day. Um, you know, and, and if if those things were to, were to come to me, especially if college football were to hang on for this fall, you will be seeing much singing and dancing um, by me. Um, but if it doesn't happen, you'll notice some slight of depression and random weeping as we talk in the fall. Kind of like my girls when they don't get popcorn, when they don't get ice cream or what they want. Well, this morning we are looking at Psalm 30, as we have been saying, which is a psalm of thanksgiving and praise. And what the psalm wants to do, along with the scripture as a whole, is to shape us into people who give thanks to God, not because uh, we get what we want, but because we become a people that see that we truly get what we need, but what we didn't deserve, which is the grace of God. Which couldn't be more true today as you know, one week after Easter as we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection for us, which we celebrate every day as Christians. But what we are truly celebrating there is uh, the disfavor of God being poured out on Jesus so that you and I might experience the favor of God for all eternity. What more could we want? What more could bring forth thanksgiving and praise than that? Because when we learn that above everything else, that the church is a group of people who have been given what they most need, but what they did not deserve, we will be a people who longs to bring him that thanksgiving and praise. And so this morning, we're going to look at the nature of thanksgiving and praise. We're going to look at the reality of who we are bringing that thanksgiving and praise to. And then we're going to look at more so an application, a sense of application, uh, what keeps us from bringing that thanksgiving and praise to God, but what returns it as well. So those three things, if you're taking notes, let's look at the first one there from that order, the nature of thanksgiving and praise. And that is thanksgiving and praise of God always moves from the personal to the corporate. It is always something that moves from the I to the we. We see this in the first five verses of this psalm. The first thing that comes out of David's mouth, as you'll notice there in verse 1, is I will extol you, O Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in you, which is another way of saying that. Uh, For you have what? For you have drawn me up. Uh, What is David talking about here? Well, it seems like as we move further in this psalm that he's been healed from some sickness. um, And that that this sickness really had him uh, at at the brink of death. And so his, his prayer, his, his praise and his thanksgiving at this point is that he has drawn him up from that, like a bucket at the bottom of a well that is drawn up from deep darkness. So David sees himself as having been on the edge of death in the sickness that he was experiencing and God healed him from it. And as a result, we notice too that David rejoices in knowing that his foes or his enemies there were kept from rejoicing over his death. So David rejoices, I will extol you, O Lord. So what, is the, what does the king of Israel then do next as we keep going through this psalm? Well, he calls then on God's people to join in praising God as well. You see that in verses 4 to 5. Notice the shift from the first person singular of I will extol you to the second person plural sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. 
This is the nature of thanksgiving and praise as we see it in Scripture. It always moves from the I to the we, uh, to the personal, to the corporate. Because biblical thanksgiving or occasions to praise God are never actually ours alone to hold on to. And really for two reasons this morning. One, the church is a people of God. Not just individuals who believe in God. Therefore, it is good and it is right uh, for the stories of rescue and redemption of his people uh, that, that comes from the hand of God himself to be brought to the people of God for his praise and for his adoration. And this is what David is doing. David's desire is to take this personal experience, in other words, where God acted in his life and on his behalf and to use it as a cause or a reason to call God's people to praise and to give thanks to God himself. But second, as God's people, all thanksgiving and praise belongs to God. And that means that if you are celebrating anything today, if you're celebrating anything at all, whether it be a wedding or grandchildren or a paycheck or good food or drink, it all belongs to God. He is the one who truly deserves our thanksgiving and our praise. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. He is the one who has brought us those things. And this is really our first point. I want to move out of it as soon as possible because it's not my favorite point of the sermon. But it's the nature of thanksgiving and praise that we see here. Coming from David. Praise that, that, is, that goes from the individual to the corporate. That goes from the I to the we. And that, that brings all that belongs to God to him. Which is thanksgiving and praise because he's the source of all good things to us. He's the reason for our celebration, especially especially as we think about Easter last week. If we have reason to celebrate and we do as people of the resurrection, it is because of our Heavenly Father. And this is where the psalm is leading us as David begins this, this psalm of thanksgiving and praise. But let's get to the second point here as we move to verse 5, because this is really uh, the, 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 you know, the meat of the order here, so to speak, of this psalm. Uh, And in this verse, as we move here, David shows us the reality of who we are actually bringing our thanksgiving and praise to. And this gets to the second point. All right. Uh, And and that point is that, is that, that who we are bringing our thanksgiving and praise to is a God whose favor always outweighs his disfavor for David. And we see this again in verse 5, which, as I said, is probably one of the most important verses in this psalm and most familiar. It says this, for his, talking about God's anger, is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. This is a monster conclusion to a psalm that has not finished yet, if you ask me. But David is making the plea with his people that God's favor in this life is always better than his disfavor. That is, it is David's general experience and it is his conviction as he has lived out his days thus far that God's favor to his people will always outweigh his disfavor towards them. And why? Well, not simply because God has been gracious and answered David's prayer to heal him, but as one commentary notes, because it is God's nature to be gracious. And that is what David is, is pointing us towards. When David says for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime or literally in his favor is life. I like, I like that better. David is stepping back and he's giving us this, this big picture. 
in the midst of this single experience where God healed him. That could have really gone either way. And David is saying, essentially, if we think about our entire lives over the course of our whole lives, when all is weighed, when all is considered, no matter what you've experienced, no matter what you have been through, God's favor to you always outweighs the disfavor. And for David, it's every time, every time. And what does David mean by anger or disfavor? Well, he means God's judgment on Israel for their sin. See, for David, the anger of God is a righteous anger that God cannot, nor should he, hide because of our sin. But David's experience is that God's anger over the sins of his people is never the final word. So yes, weeping may tarry, or actually what it means may arrive at night, as it does for all of us in different ways and in different measures, but joy will come in the morning. Now, David isn't saying that while you might experience sadness in the nighttime, that as soon as the sun comes up, God will bring joy to you in that time. He might, but that's not what David is getting at. That's not his point. Nor is David saying in this life, you know, you just got to take the good with the bad here. Um, You got to find that silver lining. No, he's not saying that either. David is saying that though life can feel, even at times, like the night where sadness has arrived and never seems to leave, that even still there's a morning or a new day coming that makes all of our sadness, all of our weeping seem like a second amongst a lifetime. That's what David is saying. How much more for us then as we reflect and as we think about what David is saying in light of the resurrection As the great hymn for all the saints whom their labors rest reads in the second to last stanza, which has not been far from my mind over the past couple weeks, says, but lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The king of glory passes on his way. Alleluia. Alleluia. See, joy is coming. Because our king, friends, our king of glory is on his way. He is coming. And when you consider the fullness of your life here and the fullness of eternity with God as David is trying to get us to do, joy wins out every time. Actually, for David, who suffered greatly as a king even, it's not even close. James Montgomery says in his commentary on this psalm, it is true that there are good and there are bad things in life. And that we do not always have, or do we see, a specific judgment or blessing or reason for these things from God. But what David is talking about is God's disfavor versus his favor. Expressed in the experiences of life, his conviction is that the favor always outweighs the disfavor for God's people. This, friends, is the reality of who we are bringing our thanksgiving and praise to. A God whose favor towards his people always outweighs his disfavor. A God who ultimately gives his people what they do not deserve. A God, as David writes, whose anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. And why, why is that more real for us today than it was for David as he wrote this? Because Jesus takes the full disfavor of God for you and for me. 
so that you and I, as we have said already, might experience the full favor of God forever. That's what resurrection is. That's what it says. It says that God's full disfavor, his judgment, it never even comes close to hitting you. See, for David in the Old Testament, God judged their sin in specific ways, but he did not judge it fully. No matter how bad it got. Only in Jesus did God judge their sin and our sin fully. Only in Jesus did he experience the full disfavor of God so that you and I might have the assurance of knowing that we will experience the full favor of God forever, for eternity. And that is sealed and given to us only because of the resurrection of Jesus. And see, because of that, also, this is what changes for the Christian, even as we look into the New Testament, suffering even, for example, as as David is writing about, that even changes for us today. It is no longer God's disfavor on you, but at worst, it is a trial to endure. One that actually has the ability, even, to bring us joy and to bring us hope. Listen to Paul's words now from Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. How is that possible? It's because of the resurrection. And because of that, our suffering then has a way of bringing joy into our lives because of the certainty of what it points us to. It says that we experience what we experience now does not even compare to what awaits us because of the resurrection, which then leads Paul to say in Second Corinthians four seventeen, for this light momentary affliction, speaking of all the things that he's experienced, uh, shipwreck, being you know, in prison, um, beaten near death. Way more than I probably will ever experience in my lifetime. Calls it a light momentary affliction in 2 Corinthians 4.17. And that it is preparing us, that it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Why can somebody say that? It's because of the resurrection, because Jesus takes the full disfavor of God. So that you and I might experience God's favor forever. David is tapping into this. What he knows in part, we now know in full. Harry Ironside um, tells this story of his father when his father was dying and suffering greatly in his last days. Harry remembers saying to his dad as as he wrote at one point saying to his dad, Father, you are suffering terribly, aren't you? To which his father replies, yes. I'm suffering more than I thought uh, was possible for anyone to suffer and still live. But one sight, he says, one sight of his blessed face will make it up, will make up for it all. Amen to that. What gives somebody the ability to even say something like that? It's the resurrection. And this is David's experience in Psalm 30, but it's our reality because of that, because of Jesus. This is who, then, we are bringing our thanks and praise to as a God whose favor always outweighs his disfavor. And we know that more in full now today because of the resurrection and what it means for us. But this gets to a question that I think comes up in sort of a sense of an application as we move to this final point. 
What keeps us then from bringing our thanksgiving and praise to him? And it's not our sorrow and it's not our weeping, which may be our first sort of uh, thought. It's actually something very different according to David in the psalm that is actually much more serious than any sorrow that we could experience. And this gets again to this final point, which I'll again say is more like application, but you can decide. What keeps us from bringing our thanksgiving to God and what what returns it is what I want to look at last. And what keeps us from bringing our thanksgiving and praise is actually placing or, or, or depending on uh, or trusting in other things but God himself. It's placing that confidence. It's placing that trust and that dependence in other things. In other words, it is sources of false confidence that we run to and that we hide in instead of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection for us. It is being dependent on them, not on the Lord, our true helper. Uh, in the book, the Forgotten Man by Amity Slays. She writes about the Great Depression uh, of the late 20s and early 30s in America. And what's interesting about that period of history, as she writes uh, before what is known as Black Tuesday when the markets fell, uh, indicating the beginning of uh, tough times for the American economy and Americans all over the fruited plain, is that before 1929, the economy was actually doing really, really well. Um, uh, in 1907, all the way to 1927, just to give you a little bit of comparison, for, for 20 years, um, the Dow Jones doubled just once. But from 1927 to 1929, in two years, it doubled again. Those first 20 years, not a whole lot uh, to get excited about when it comes to returns. But in those two years, with 100% returns and fortunes made, this will cause many people uh, to be proud and to rejoice and to find uh, confidence in themselves. And so as, you, as she accounts, as she writes about, uh, about this date, um, you, you find that before October 29th, um, there was just a lot of, of, of people talking about how economies really work and what I did to secure my, my wealth and how I did this and how I did that. But after Tuesday, October 29th, all that changed. All those fortunes were wiped out, gone, leaving, leaving people's hopes shattered so much so that on Wall Street that day, two men who managed a joint account together and lost everything actually committed suicide by leaping out of their office window, holding hands no less. Later in November of that same year, millionaire Robert Cyril, she writes, uh, president of Rochester Gas and Electric Corporation at the time, gassed himself to death after losing more than a million in one month. All this revealing what? Their sources of true confidence with their hope, what their hope was truly in. It isn't until after the crisis, after the depression, and really mostly while in the midst of it, that many sources of false confidence and dependence upon things like wealth and money were actually exposed. And what periods of crisis do then, for better or for worse, as she notes, is they actually afford us the opportunity to identify places of dependence in our lives and hearts. And I would say identify places of dependence in our lives and hearts outside of the Lord himself and what he actually provides us. And to confess then and repent of those things, returning again to the only source of true dependence and confidence in this world, Jesus Christ, is not a judgment upon us, but it's actually God's grace to us. And in this way, a crisis can feel like a judgment. It might feel like a judgment today. 
But it's actually a grace to us because of Jesus, Jesus and his resurrection to be able to see those, those sources of false confidence and to begin to replace our trust in what is really true and what is really certain, that is Christ himself. It is the human condition in times of prosperity, which is what we see happening to David here, to think this is all because of me. That's placing our ultimate dependence on ourselves. Listen to David's shift to a confession here in verse 6. As for me, he said, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. What a bold statement. And he goes on in verse 7, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. But then when you hid your face, I was dismayed. See, through, through the crisis that he experienced, a source of false confidence was exposed, much like those on October 29th, 1929. His prosperity is what was exposed, where he was looking to for that. This caused him to praise and to trust, not in God, but in himself. Now, we aren't sure what David means by prosperity here, but it's not hard to imagine that what this could be for him, especially as a successful king, is uh, the power and the wealth that that brought him. Uh, many, many point to the fact that it could actually be um, sort of the confidence that he felt because of the warriors that he had in many armies. Second uh, Samuel 24 takes up a census uh, for David to count those warriors. And he could be finding himself feeling invincible because of what he has around him. But we're not entirely sure what he means by prosperity. What we do know is that a sickness came to him. And in the midst of that, it brings David near death. And all of that confidence that David is saying just went away. And it's at this point that we begin to see how fragile we really are, right? How quickly we forget that it is only because of God's uh, favor that our mountains, as it were, our sources of strength and prosperity actually stand. Not because of us. We are truly here one day and we are gone the next Now, how real does this experience of David's align with our own even over the past four to six weeks with the outbreak of the coronavirus? Here we are, we're going along, we're enjoying record high stock markets, economy's on fire, and then in a matter of weeks, gains are gone, and the economy is literally shut down. All because of a virus you can't even see. How fragile are we? Could this experience, though, like David's, cause us, cause the church even to see sources of false confidence where we have felt invincible over the years? Even or in one way or another, made David's words our own. As for me, I said of my prosperity, I will never, ever be moved. And while I'm praying for our economy to start back and for this virus to be stopped, this is the time, friends, to reflect as this psalm leads us to, to confess even and to repent of those false confidence that are, those false confidences that are being revealed through this crisis and to not see it as a time of God's judgment, but of God's incredible mercy and his grace and his favor on you. How kind of a God It is to reveal this in our life as he did for David so that we what might return to the true source of confidence and hope in God himself. Our object of thanksgiving and praise, not ourselves. 
But as you might be thinking, why does it have to take a crisis for this to happen in our lives? Why is that what it takes uh, for David? Uh, Why does it take a near-death experience for him and what we might be experiencing today through this virus to reveal these sources of false confidence? And the troubling words that I have for you this morning is that the reality is, is crisis is where we listen. Where we begin to learn and even relearn dependence on God. Notice how David ends his confession. Verse 8, to you, O Lord, I cry and to the Lord I plead for mercy. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. It's that word helper uh, that, 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 that cries out for dependence. See, the word helper here comes to us. Uh, it is the same word that, that, that is used in Genesis 2, chapter 18, when God says to Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. It is a word that signifies completeness from what was lacking. Adam needed or was dependent on Eve and her uniqueness in order to carry out their mission given to them in the garden, which was to be fruitful and to multiply and have dominion over the earth and to subdue it. That mission then cannot happen without Eve or without Adam. And like Eve and Adam, God is to our helper. Not though because he swoops in and he gives us some encouragement along the way or, or gets us moving you know, in the right direction. God is our helper because he gives us what we ultimately do not have. What we are lacking, what we cannot produce in ourselves, which is the ability to complete the mission to rescue ourselves and creation. In this way, David is dependent on the Lord's help, both physically, but ultimately spiritually spiritually as well. This is why God is now his helper. This is how he has returned to dependence on God uh, through repenting of of this source of false confidence that this crisis revealed. But that's what it took to get him to that point. It took this crisis. It took something to disrupt his life in a way that showed him where his true confidence was placed. And then seeing it and being able to confess it drives him to the Lord as his helper, the one who is ultimately, who he is ultimately dependent upon. And it's at this point that we recognize that what returns our thanksgiving and praise to God is when we are dependent upon him for everything. Look at how David ends this psalm, verses 11 to 12. May our hearts as well bring a return to him, the thanksgiving and praise that he deserves, as David does here. You have turned for me my morning into dancing. You have loosened, loosened my sackcloth uh, and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is, this is how we return our thanksgiving and praise back to the Lord. What keeps us from bringing our praise and thanksgiving, as David is showing us, is that we are confident in something else other than him, other than Jesus and his death and resurrection. We are dependent upon other things. But thankfully, through this crisis that David experienced, and perhaps even today, that the crisis that we are experiencing with this virus, the Lord would return our thanksgiving and praise by breaking us, by leveling us, by showing us how, how broken we really are, how fragile we are. 
And that would return then our thanks and praise to him because we realize our, our true source of confidence. Tim Keller on this section of the psalm writes, God shakes our confidence in our earthly life so that we can learn, we can yearn, excuse me, for our heavenly life where our joy is truly unshakable and where our wailing will be turned into dancing. What keeps us from bringing our thanksgiving to the Lord? That's placing our trust in other things. This is a wonderful time to figure out what that might be. To think about what that, what, what that is. How can we use this time both as individuals but as the church to look at and see what sources of false confidence, what dependence we really are resting in as we go through this crisis together. Then at the same time in our confession and our repentance return as, as, as a people of God together rejoicing in his grace and mercy to us. His thanksgiving and praise because we have returned to him uh, as our helper. The one we are truly dependent upon. The only one who has the ability again to turn our weeping into dancing forever. So we've seen the nature of thanksgiving and praise. We've seen the reality of who we are bringing our thanksgiving and praise. And we've looked at what keeps us from, from, from praising God, from giving him our thanks and what returns it as well. And so I'll leave you with this question that we started with. What moves you today to thanksgiving and praise? What is it that, that is calling forth uh, the things of your heart that you want to confess and say and give thanks to, uh, that you want to rejoice in even? Is it getting what you want? Or is it beginning to see that you have been given what it is you do not deserve, ultimately in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection? That God's favor uh, you have God's favor this morning because Jesus took the, the ultimate. He took, he took the full disfavor of God that we deserve so that you might have God's favor for eternity. That is a reason to bring forth thanksgiving and praise this morning. If that is not coming from us, and I don't mean that in a, in a sort of a guilting type of way or from a uh, you know, superficial kind of way either. But if that doesn't, that doesn't move our hearts in some way, then, then, then that only means that one other, one other thing can be true. And that is, we are trusting in something else. Something else is garnering our praise and thanksgiving. We are dependent upon something else beyond Jesus' death and his resurrection. And in God's grace, may he call us back, if that be the case, in the places that we are, to that source, that only source of true confidence um, in Jesus Christ. This is the invitation of the gospel. It is an invitation to lay down those sources of false confidence and to, and to depend on the only source of true confidence in Jesus, made certain by his resurrection for you. May God's love for us and seeing his full disfavor poured out on his son Jesus so that you might experience his favor and goodness forever be what truly moves us this day and for eternity to bring forth thanksgiving and praise to him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Psalm 30 and we thank you that we live in a day that we can read that in light of your death and resurrection as we look in, at the New Testament writers, even Paul, how the resurrection has shaped the way that they think about their lives and how they think about um, what praise and thanksgiving really is and how their lives are testimonies uh, to the grace of Jesus uh, regardless of whatever happens to them. You have saved us. 
And while we may not be healed uh, today from sicknesses um, or whatever might come our way, uh, you have truly healed us in the way that matters. Uh, You have forgiven us from our sin that we may actually truly live eternally, that we may have joy in the morning, uh, that you have returned us uh, to uh, an everlasting hope, as Paul says, uh, in Christ. And may that be the source of our thanksgiving and praise as we leave here and as we go on into the week tomorrow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.